Among them, we too formerly all lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, and our transgressions made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus in order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ. For by grace you've been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Holy Father, we thank you for the grace that you've shown us that when we were dead, and unable in ourselves to respond. You worked in us by the Spirit of God, whom you promised would convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And in your mercy, you opened our eyes to the truth of the gospel that we might choose to believe or not to believe. And thank you for the grace that turned our hearts towards you. Thank you that immediately you made us alive you sent the Spirit the moment we believe to live in us, to regenerate us, to cause us to be born into a new kingdom. And we thank you for the grace that brings salvation, how it teaches us to deny worldliness, and it creates in us a zeal for holiness. Our Father, you promised that you would not only save us, but you would sanctify us that you would shape us and renew us through the word of God. Jesus, you said, sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. So as we open your word this morning, may we be teachable, may we be humble, may we have hearts to hear what you have written and inspired. May it be like food to our soul today. May we be changed by the exposure to Holy Scripture. Father, without you I can do nothing, but with you all things are possible. So I pray that you would fill me and anoint me and use me, that together we might lift up the Lord Jesus, your holy Son, and we ask it in his precious name. Amen. Would you take your Bibles, please, this morning and turn to the book of 1 Kings. If you're new to the Bible, just find the Psalms. It's about dead center. And then scan to the left, and right before First and Second Chronicles, you will come to First and Second Kings. Now, if you're joining us for the first time, we have been in a new series on the life and times of Elijah the prophet. This is the third of potentially 10 messages I am going to give. Elijah was a man who lived in very, very difficult times, much like the times that we are living. And the Holy Spirit loves to use the lives of a godly individual to challenge us to holy living, to believe God the way he believed God. And Elijah was a man who dared to trust God in the day in which he lived. Now, if you've been saved, then you know that walking with God is really the most exciting and the most rewarding of all experiences on earth. But it also can be the most challenging especially if you are living in evil, troubled, days of pestilence like Elijah the prophet lived. And so when you study the life of Elijah, this great man of God, what I love about him is his integrity. There's not a shred of phoniness in his life. 
he is bleeding through with a righteous, holy, zealous heart for the things of God. And there's much that we can learn from Elijah's walk that we might walk in the same way. He ministered, as we've studied in the first two messages, during the time of the kings. And he was not afraid to confront the most wicked and evil king probably in all of Israel's history. And I suppose there's no more dramatic confrontation than the one we find here in 1 Kings 18. There are two groups of people. One are a group of false prophets who shout, Baal is God, and then there is a group of one, Elijah, who says, Jehovah is God. And it's a very dramatic scene, a very dramatic uh, picture. I thought about how I might title this sermon, maybe the battle of the gods, or God versus Baal, or will the real God please stand up? And I hope someday to do a series, maybe on Wednesday night, on the great chapters in the Bible. And if I were to choose one, this would certainly be in that series. It's one of the few places in the Bible where there's a great showdown between the God of heaven and the idols of man on the earth. And what we find here is a fight to the finish. And of course, God is the winner. It's one of the most interesting and fascinating passages in the whole Old Testament. But why this great showdown? Had they not had enough drought for three and a half years? Why not just bring the rain? Well, I I think God has a reason. You know, the Scripture says that these false prophets were raising up a false god by the name of Baal. Now, we know, as Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, we know there is no god but one, he said in 1 Corinthians 8, 4. There's only one in true, there's only one true God, and God in a very extreme and dramatic way wants to brand that truth into the hearts and the minds of the people of Israel who are being influenced by these pagan priests. And so publicly, decisively, without question, a national primetime viewing, the people of Israel are going to come to grips in what I've called this morning the Great Showdown. Now, Elijah has just been told by Obadiah that he is, um, that Ahab is looking for him. And Elijah wants Obadiah to tell Ahab that he wants to meet with him. And so with that said, I want to pick it up in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 16. I hope you bring a Bible to the place where you're worshiping this morning. I hope you have one in your laps. I promise you'll get 50% more out of any sermon I preach if you have a copy of the Word of God. 1 Kings chapter 18, beginning now in verse 16. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is this you, you troubler of Israel? He said, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and you have followed the Baals. Now then, send and gather to me all Israel at Mount Carmel, together with 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of the Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent a message among all the sons of Israel and brought the prophets together at Mount Carmel. Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal, follow him. But the people did not answer him a word. 
Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Now let them give us two oxen. Let them choose one ox for themselves and cut it up and place it on the wood and put no fire under it. And I will prepare the other ox and lay it on the wood and I will not put a fire under it. Then you call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And the people said, that is a good idea. Now, for many who are walking into this text of Scripture cold, let me remind you of the background. There's a confrontation that we are introduced to in 1 Kings chapter 17 and verse 1. This is where it originates. We're told, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Elijah, a man of courage, a man of conviction, goes and confronts this wicked king Ahab with this statement. And by divine commentary given by both the Lord Jesus and the Apostle James in the New Testament, we know that this drought lasted for three and one half years. And so King Ahab is after Elijah, no doubt because he wants Elijah to retract the prophecy that he has made. But God sends his prophet into hiding. In our first message, we saw him by the brook Cherith, where God provided for him by the ravens that brought him food. And then God moved him after the brook dried up to the town of Zarephath, a widow's home, where the bag of flour and the jar of oil never ran dry. And that brought us to this scene in chapter 18 and verse 1, where things dramatically change. Again, notice, it happened after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, that is in the third year of his residence in Zarephath, saying, go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the face of the earth. Now, earlier, God said, go hide yourself, but now God says, go show yourself. Earlier, God said there would be a drought. Now, God says, I'm going to send rain. And so the training time is over. Elijah, at least for the moment, through the experiences that he has had, is able and ready to believe God for some supernatural things. God is ready for his prophet to go public again. Look at verse 2. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. It's especially severe in Samaria. I take it that God allowed every brook every river, every spring, every well to dry up there. Why Samaria? Because God was obviously directing the drought in its most severe expression to the place, the capital of Baal worship, where Ahab and Jezebel lived. God hit Samaria, the capital city, if you remember, of the northern kingdom at this time. He hits them the hardest because that's where the king's palace is. As you can see on this map, Samaria is about 40 miles southeast of Mount Carmel, and it's a long way from Zarephath, so it's about a 90-mile walk for Elijah, but he's no wimp. He makes the long walk through some very difficult terrain, and uh, from Zarephath, he, he meets Ahab down south in Samaria, and we're told here in verse 3, Ahab called Obadiah, who is over the household. Now, Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. 
Obadiah is a believer. And by the way, he's not the same Obadiah that has a book that bears his name in the New Testament. A true man of God who fears God. And if a person really fears God, then it's going to express itself in some kind of a change in his life. And so verse 4 indicates, for when Jezebel destroyed the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and provided them with bread and water. So he hides the prophets of God at great risk, not just in terms of the risk of his job, but the risk of his very life. Obadiah works for King Ahab, but he lives for the one true God. He has a secular job, but he has a spiritual life. By the way, there's nothing wrong with being in politics if you're representing the Lord God in the political realm. But it's a bad place to be if you don't stand up for the Lord. And sometimes God confronts evil with an in-your-face kind of preacher like Elijah, or sometimes he does it through subversion through a man like Obadiah. Now, it's obvious that these two men are dramatically different in personality and in ministry, but no less important. Elijah's ministry is very public. It's very confrontational, whereas Obadiah's ministry is quiet. It's a behind-the-scenes kind of thing. But both men are functioning faithfully in the place in which God has called them. May I remind you that the Bible never tells us that there's only one kind of faithful servant. Paul said to the Corinthians in chapter 12 of his first letter, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit, and there are varieties of ministries in the same Lord. So the Bible never demands that you be an Elijah kind of clone. Faith is not so dull that it only comes in one flavor. There are many, many, many different kinds of servants today in the body of Christ as in this great day when Israel was confronted by evil, but some people really distinguish themselves. God doesn't call you to the kind of work, say, that Elijah does. By the way, miracles were never consistent all the way through the scriptures. These fake, phony evangelists of our day will try to convince you that they are true men of God because they can do the supernatural. Some who claim everything from raising the dead to growing limbs to all kinds of things. But miracles have never been continuous through biblical history. It's only on the great ganglions of uh, change that God will bring them about. And hundreds of years had gone by since the first cluster of miracles came through Moses and then for a short time through Joshua and now through Elijah and then his protege, Elisha, who will follow after him. So God doesn't call us all to the same kind of great works and miracles that this man does. But he calls us all to good works. We are to manifest the new life in Christ. God has created you in Christ Jesus onto good works. The scripture says you're not saved by works, but you're saved for good works. So God doesn't call you to a flamboyant ministry per se, but he calls you to a faithful ministry. Look now at verse 5. Look what we read. Then Ahab said to Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs of water into all the valleys. Perhaps we will find grass and keep the horses and mules alive and not have to kill some of the cattle. I mean, what a contrast between Ahab and Obadiah. 
Ahab wants to save the cattle. Obadiah wants to save the prophets. And I suppose it's not much different today. There are people who want to save the whales, but at the same time, they want to kill the babies. Here's this king who should have been searching for forgiveness, but instead he's foraging around for food. He should have been looking for God, but instead he's looking for grass. Furthermore, notice here in verse 6, so they divided the land between them to survey it. Ahab went one way by himself, and Obadiah went another way by himself. Things are so bad, the king himself, he's involved in surveying the problem. And when Elijah's path suddenly intersects with the path of Obadiah, this king's right-hand man, I want you to notice from verse 7 how Obadiah providentially in God's perfect time has this appointment with God's prophet, we're told. Now, as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him, and he recognized him. And fell on his face and said, is this you, Elijah, my master? Remember, Elijah is a wanted man in Israel, and Obadiah can hardly believe that he has found Elijah. He falls on his face out of respect for God's man. He bows down too out of astonishment, and he asks, is this you, Elijah, my master? Now, notice Elijah's response here in verse 8. He said to him, it is I. Go say to your master, behold, Elijah is here. Elijah is wanting to speak with Ahab. Ask Obadiah, go Obadiah and announce myself to, to this king. But Obadiah, he's scared spitless. He's afraid what could happen. He's afraid that just as suddenly as this prophet appears and then disappears, that he could be gone again. He fears, that he'll, he fears that he'll announce Elijah to the king, and then when Ahab goes to meet him, that God will spirit him away again. So Obadiah, he's afraid of being executed for having a no-show prophet. Look what we read beginning now in verse 9. He said, what sin have I committed that you are giving your servant into the hand of Ahab to put me to death? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my master is not sent to search for you. And when they said he is not here, he made the kingdom or nation swear that they could not find you. And now you're saying, go say to your master, behold, Elijah is here. It will come about when I leave you that the spirit of the Lord will carry you where I do not know. So when I come and tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he will kill me, although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Obadiah is saying to God's man who comes and goes ever so quickly, you mean you're actually going to send me to wait while you wait right here to go get Ahab the king. And then when I bring him back and you're not here, ah, oh, shucks, Ahab, he was here an hour ago, but now he's gone. Elijah, he'll cut my head off. He'll execute me. So beginning in verse 13, Obadiah reminds Elijah that his own word can be trusted. Why? Because like you, Elijah, I too fear the living God. Notice, has it not been told to my master what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord, that I hid a hundred prophets of the Lord by fifties in a cave and provided them with bread and water? In other words, I don't, I don't need this kind of treatment. I'm faithful and fear, God-fearing like you, Elijah. 
Don't send me to get Ahab, and then when I bring him, you're not here. And now you're saying, go say to your master, behold, Elijah is here. He will then kill me. Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. Elijah was confident that God could handle all the physical arrangements. He had shown himself faithful of the brook Cherith and then with the widow in Zarephath. Now that's the backdrop for what we're going to examine today where the prophets of Baal are confronted with the one true prophet of God. There on your outline, just three simple points. It begins with the challenge. It begins with the challenge. We're told here in verse 16, so Abadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. Now, I'm sure that Ahab, had made, as he made his way through these rotting, stinking, drought-starved cattle, as he goes to meet Elijah with the stench of death in the air everywhere he goes, he's eager to see this prophet face-to-face. Remember, this has been going on for three and a half years, and look what happens when they finally meet, verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah... Ahab said to him, is this you, you troubler of Israel? The parallel expression in English might be, is this you, you snake in the grass? In fact, the the form of this Hebrew word, ashkub, translated here, troubler, is a word that literally means a viper, an asp, or a snake. Ahab views Elijah as a poisonous snake in hiding. And he's blinded by his own sin such that he blames Elijah, saying, Elijah, you've made life in Israel absolutely miserable. Look at what you've done. And so Elijah, as best he is able, wants to remove the blinders from Ahab's eyes. And I love his response. It's equal to the occasion. He reminds me of Nathan the prophet who gets right in the face of King David and points his finger and says, no, David. You are the man. Look, look at verse 18. He said, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's houses have because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and you have followed the Baals. You see what this verse is saying? Don't blame me for what's happened. God's brought the drought on Israel because of people like you. Your father was a troublemaker. Your whole house is full of troublemakers. Don't blame the preacher, Ahab. You are the problem. Blame yourself. And the point of rub, according to what the prophet says, is between Baal worship and the commandments of the Lord. I love this guy. He doesn't mince words. He just says it like it is. And so now Elijah issues a challenge. And by the way, as you read through the rest of this chapter, there's no question as to who is in charge. He doesn't really deal with Ahab because Elijah knows that Ahab is a pawn. He's a pawn in the hand of Jezebel, and Jezebel is a pawn in the hand of Satan who instigated and created Baal worship and idolatry. And so this spiritual conflict is critical because the nation of Israel and their spiritual vitality is at stake. So he speaks, as you look through the text, eight different times, and every time he speaks, Elijah takes the initiative. Every time he speaks, he gives a command. 
And I am reminded from this man's life that when our lives are clean, that there's a confidence, there's a courage that God is able to put in a clean heart, and God will give you the courage of your convictions to carry out his will. So Elijah's on the offense. Why? Because he knows that he's right. He knew where he stood. There's no insecurity in this man's heart. Now, in verse 19, he issues the first command, and this the great showdown. Notice, now then, send and gather to me all Israel at Mount Carmel, or Carmel if you prefer, together with 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of the Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. You can almost feel the electricity in the air. This is a challenge, and everyone loves a challenge. And so all Israel gathers up there on top of Mount Carmel. By the thousands, they stream up that mountain, which you have been, if you've been there, and many of you have been there with me, it has a commanding view of the Mediterranean Sea. Now, it's interesting to note the place that Elijah has selected. Mount Carmel is to Baal worship what Mount Calvary is to Christianity. Mount Carmel was the most sacred of all the Baal shrines because they believed that Baal literally dwelled on that mountain. Now, please notice the odds that are outlined for us in this verse. There are 450 prophets of Baal, and there are 400 prophets of the Asherah. Asherah was the female deity, supposedly Baal's girlfriend. And so these prophets are said to eat, notice, at Jezebel's table. She's a very beautiful woman, but a very wicked woman. She's helped financing, underwriting this demon-inspired worship. And her name today is synonymous with a shameless, aggressive, seductive woman. And so millennia later, we speak of a Jezebel kind of woman. But don't miss the point. Do you see how bold he is? He's saying, you get your 850 prophets who serve this so-called God Baal, and we'll meet at his place of worship there on Mount Carmel. I'll meet you on your own turf, which obviously would have pleased Ahab because he had, in essence, the distinct advantage of being on his home turf. So verse 20 tells us, so Ahab sent a message among all the sons of Israel and brought the prophets together at Mount Carmel. There are two groups, the sons of Israel or the Jewish people who represent the 10 northern tribes, and then there are the false prophets. Now hold that thought in your mind. It's very important to understand the conclusion of the entire narrative. Elijah in this chapter is going to address these false prophets who have led the children of Israel into false worship, into idolatry. Elijah wants to win these Hebrew people back to the worship of the one true God. And to do so, he's going to have to remove the priests from the land. So he begins by addressing the people and not the pagan priests. The priests are hardcore apostates. They have already made their decision. Their destiny is sealed, and you can reach a point in your life where your destiny can be sealed. Jesus in John 12 spoke of those men who had had light, but they did not respond to the light, and he warned them if they would not soon respond, that darkness would overtake them. And then he said directly to some of the leaders in Israel that they 
could not believe for the simple reason that they would not believe. There is a line known only to God that you can cross where you cannot believe for the simple reason that you would not believe. And that's where these men are. But the people are undecided. And so here is Elijah, and he begins by preaching a short, clear, and concise sermon. Look at verse 21. Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? The Hebrew text literally reads, if you have the NASB with marginal notes and you need a copy like that, it will be very helpful to your study of Scripture if you don't read Hebrew. How long will you limp on between two divided opinions? Elijah is saying, how long are you going to continue on the broad road? How long will it be before you get on the straight and narrow? How long will you limp between going back and forth? How long are you going to sit on the proverbial fence? He accuses them of the sin of indecisiveness. They're at a fork in the road, and he's telling them, you need to make a decision. He'd have no sympathy for the politician when asked, well, are you for this issue or are you against this issue? Well, some of my friends are for it, some of my friends are against it, and I'm for my friends. He's not that kind of prophet. There's no political correctness. There's no neutrality when it comes to following the Lord. And I hope you know that you cannot walk a straight course unless you are sold out to the living God. You cannot live halfway for the Lord. Do you remember what Jesus said in John eleven twenty three? 23? He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. If you're not for Jesus, you're against Jesus. If you're not gathering for him and his kingdom, don't delude yourself into thinking that you are for him, because Jesus plainly said you are not. In Luke 9, 26, he said, For whoever is ashamed of me in my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of his holy angels. Likewise, he said in Luke 12, And I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man shall confess him before the angels of God, but he who denies me before men shall be denied before the angels of God. The prophets of Baal had already denied the living God, but the children of Israel had come to the hour of decision for their life, and they knew it. Now, remember, the New Testament reminds us in many places that the Old Testament was written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. This is not simply what God has said. This is what God is saying, and God is still speaking through the prophet Elijah how long Will you hesitate between two opinions? God is still asking, how long are you going to be for me on Sunday and against me on Monday? How long are you going to be spiritual one moment and for the world the next? How long are you going to, to go against the commandments of God? How long are you going to walk in spiritual infidelity? You must decide. How long are you going to live in compromise? If the Lord is God, he says, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. God is saying, you have to make a choice. There's no room for peaceful coexistence between Baal and Jehovah God. 
Unlike many today, Elijah knew that decisions have consequences. He's not going to allow these people to attend this God contest and to leave undecided. They have to conclude, look, I'm either going to follow the one true God or I'm going to follow Baal. If the Lord is God, follow him. Look, atheists are so much smarter than a lot of us. They smell the implications of the Christian faith. If the God of the Bible is true, then you should follow him. And you shouldn't follow him in some half-hearted way. He's not some toy you can play with. He is a king. He is a sovereign to whom he calls you to submit to. Now, you may want a God that you can domesticate and manipulate after your own wills and plans. To put this into New Testament theology, you cannot receive Jesus as Savior and continue to spurn him as Lord because the New Testament knows nothing of this. He doesn't give you that option. There's a clear choice here. And conviction falls here on top of Mount Carmel is God's word is sp spoken through God's prophet. It brings total silence. Notice, but the people did not answer him a word. That's good. It would have been a bad thing if they tried to rationalize or tried to debate or come up with some argument why they were living the way they were, but there was dead silence, conviction on top of that hill. It reminds me of what Jesus said in Revelation 3. Do you remember when we studied the seven churches of the Revelation as we walked through the whole book of Revelation? And by the way, for those live streaming, it's all available at searchthescriptures.org. Jesus said this to the church in Laodicea, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. How does that grab you? God throws up over indifference. And if this is a typical Sunday, there are people who are listening to my voice where God has brought you to your hour of decision. And this might be the last day, the last moment you have to decide, and I hope you will, but you cannot straddle a spiritual fence. You have to decide. That's the challenge. Now, beginning in verse 22, we are given the contest. The contest. Follow verse 22 carefully. Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Now remember, according to verse 4, there are 100 other preachers who are still around, but they're scared spitless. They're hiding in a cave. And so Elijah reminds here the sons of Israel the odds in order to emphasize that, humanly speaking, the contest that they are in is a total impossibility. There are the 450 prophets of Baal. He doesn't even bother to mention the 400 prophets of the Asherah. The odds are 850 to 1. Elijah is a loner, so to speak, but it's a reminder to me that popularity does not always determine reality. Notice the terms as they're spelled out beginning here in verse 23. Now let them give us two oxen, let them choose one ox for themselves and cut it up and place it on the wood, but put no fire under it, and I will prepare the other ox and lay it on the wood, 
and I will not put a fire under it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. Now, may I remind you that Baal was the chief deity in the Canaanite pantheon. He was the so-called fertility god who sent rain in order to grow the crops. Archaeology has found a piece of stone written in Eucharitic with these words, Baal throws flashes of lightning to the earth. And so you know that this drought had to have been an embarrassment to the worshipers of Baal. Baal is the one who shoots fire, who throws lightning from heaven. When the lightning would flash, they'd say, that's Baal, that, that's Baal speaking. And if you've studied ancient history, then you know that the sun, the fire of the universe, was one of the principal objects of worship, not just for this religion, but a plurality of religions. And so Baal is considered to be the Lord of fire, the God of life who brings fertility both through the rain and through the sun, which is why you find in First and Second Kings, because they are worshiping a false god that with Baal worship is involved sexual immorality. Why? Because he's the so-called fertility god. And among other things, the Scripture reveals that it involved passing their own children through the fire, child sacrifice, offering their own little babies to Baal, the god of fire, and then living in fornication. It was all part of the worship service that these people, Baal followers, were involved in. And so if there is anything that a god of fire ought to be able to do, he ought to be able to light a fire. So he says, you call in the name of your God, I'll call in the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And the people said, that's a good idea. We like the plan, Elijah. Great idea. Yeah, let's go for it. And so now it's time for the battle of the gods. Now I might pause here for a moment to ask an important question. Why not just send rain dramatically then fire. Why, why not send a, a, a funnel of rain down from heaven? Is that not the need of the hour? Now, Elijah is a man who walked by faith. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. And he is highlighted in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, not by name, but by his deed. He is a man who lived by faith. And so why not bring some powerful, dramatic funnel of rain from heaven? Why fire and not rain? And the answer is simple. Because Elijah wants to see these people come to repentance and forgiveness. And God has already, right from the early chapters of Genesis, laid down the principle that the life is in the blood, and therefore without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. There must be sacrifice before there can be blessing. And the ox, the animals that were laid on altar after altar and ultimately in the tabernacle and the temple, all prefigured the coming of the Messiah and the work that he would do. And so Elijah comes up with the idea of building an altar and an ox would be laid on the altar and fire would be come down. Why? Because God would need to be propitiated. His wrath needs to be appeased 
or satisfied because once again, before there can be blessing, there must be sacrifice. And these people had been worshiping and offering sacrifices to the false god Baal. Their hearts had been pulled away. Notice beginning in verse 25. So Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one ox for yourselves and prepare it first, for you are many, and call on the name of your God, but put no fire under it. Then they took the ox which was given them and they prepared it and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon. Oh, Baal, answer us. These prophets are saying, oh, Baal, listen to your priests. Oh, Baal, show Elijah that you really are the one true God. Oh, Baal, answer us. But zero, zippo, nothing happens. The Bible says, but there was no voice and no one answered. The writer does not say Baal did not answer, as if Baal existed and can't answer. By phrasing the sentence the way he phrased it, he makes Baal a non-entity, but there was no voice and no one answered, and they leaped about the altar which they made. Can you picture this? These prophets are pulling up their robes. They're dancing around the altar. They're trying to get their so-called Baal to bring fire down from heaven. According to verse 27, this happened when the sun was at the hottest time of the day at its zenith. I mean, if there was an opportunity and an advantage to pull it off, now was the time. We're told it came about at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, call out with a loud voice, for he is a God. Either he is occupied or gone aside or is on a journey or perhaps he is asleep and needs to be awakened. I think he's enjoying himself. And if you read the words carefully, you know this man had a sense of humor. I can see him standing against a tree saying, call out to Baal for he's a God. That's what you say. Cry a little louder. If he's a God, he ought to be able to hear you. But maybe he needs to have his hearing aid turned up. Maybe he's a little bit hard of hearing to shout a little bit louder. Or maybe he's occupied, he's talking to someone else, and he can't talk to two people at the same time. In fact, the Hebrew word here, occupied, was used of someone in deep conversation or meditation or thought. So shout a little louder, you need to get his attention. Or maybe he's gone aside. The New King James says he's busy. The Old King James says he's pursuing. It's a Hebrew euphemism. It's one of the few times in all of the scriptures where you find someone described as going to the bathroom. Literally, he is relieving himself, picking up this euphemism. The L.E.B. translation renders it. Perhaps he is meditating or he's using the bathroom. Hey, guys, you know, Bill, he's away for a little while. Listen, if you don't think there's any humor in the Bible, it's your problem. Elijah then adds, or maybe he's on a journey. Maybe he's out there vacationing by the Mediterranean Sea. Perhaps he's asleep and needs to be awakened. I hope you notice the progression here. First, there's a moderate cry. There's followed by a dance. They begin to howl and shout. And now after Elijah mocks them, this satanically inspired religion goes into a deeper frenzy. Notice verse 28. So they cried with a loud voice and cut themselves. 
according to the custom, with swords and lances until the blush gushed out of them. To show Baal just how sincere they really are, they mutilate their own bodies until the blood gushed out. Mark it well, my friends. If sincerity somehow could get you into heaven, if sincerity somehow could get you saved, then these men would all be in the kingdom. These are the most sincere of all people. How many Christians have confronted unbelievers who said, well, God knows my heart, and God knows how sincere I am. Sincerity never got anyone into heaven. There are people who every week attend church who shout amen when the preacher preaches, who sing and they mean it, they pray and they mean it. There are a lot of people who are trying to work their way into heaven. They think they are righteous, but they have never humbled themselves and relied on Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection alone to save them. They are sincere, but they are sincerely wrong because they have the wrong object for their faith. Notice verse 29. When midday was passed, they raved until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. But there was no voice. No one answered, and no one paid attention. I'm sure they were never so humiliated in all their lives. And I can just picture them in exhaustion, flopping and failing and panning there in the dust of the ground. Then Elijah, the lone prophet of God, steps into the ring. Verse 30, then Elijah said to all the people, come near to us. Move in a little closer. I don't want you to miss a thing. I don't want you to think there's any sleight of hand, that there's any trickery happening here in my methodology. He wants them to see the whole process so that God Almighty gets all the glory. So all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah was not about to use the pagan altar that these worshipers of Baal have used. And God's altar had been torn down because the people had been worshiping Baal and not the one true God. So we're told in verse 31, Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord had come saying, Israel shall be your name. You remember that from Genesis. There are 12 stones, one for each tribe. And that's significant because though the kingdom is divided into two halves, north and south, Israel and Judah, 10 tribes in the north and two in the south. In God's perspective, he still, still sees them as one people under a single Lord, a single covenant with a single destiny. So with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord and he made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two measures of seed. Then he arranged the wood and cut the ox in places and laid it on the wood. And he said, Fill four pitchers with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And by the way, the Hebrew word that is rendered here, pitchers, is a specific word that refers to a very large vessel. And so the King James renders it barrels. It's a sizable container. And let me just interject here for a moment because the critics of the Bible love to pick out passages like this. They say, you see, here's a contradiction in the Bible. There's a drought in the land. There's obviously no water. So where could he have gotten these four barrels of water to pour over the sacrifice three different times? 
Well, first, remember, the drought is most severe in Samaria. They are now on Mount Carmel. Verse 2 of this chapter tells us, too, that not only was it especially severe in Samaria, but second, here in Mount Carmel, we know even to this day that there are underground springs, and it's very possible that some of those springs were functioning. But third, again, if you've been there, you have a commanding view of the Mediterranean Sea. And no doubt, possibly, Elijah, knowing what he was going to do and how the contest would unfold that day, he had the sons of Israel crate up barrels of water from the Mediterranean Sea because he knew that salt water could work just as well as fresh. However it happened, he soaks the burnt offering in the wood and he says, I don't think that's quite wet enough. So he says, do it a second time. They did it a second time. It's still not wet enough. Do it a third time. They did it a third time. He has four barrels of water and three times poured over the sacrifice. By this time, it is one big soggy mess. The pagans are probably thinking that Elijah has really been dumb, that his God's chances of success are about zero, that he's not a very bright prophet. He's a stupid prophet. They know that wet wood does not burn, but Elijah stacks the deck against God so that when the fire comes down from heaven, there is absolutely no mistake that this is an act of God. Verse 35, the water flowed around the altar, and it also filled the trench with the water. It was as if Elijah is trying to put some obstacles in the way of God because his faith is so great. He was saying, God, I want these people to see just how great you are. And I can picture him at this point telling the people to be careful to get out of the way. Notice verse 36. At the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, Today let it be known that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and I have done all these things at your word. Please underscore that in your Bible, at your word. Here is a man who's praying a biblical prayer in accordance to the word of God. And like Elijah of old, we too must plead the promises of God. We must know what God has said so that we can pray biblically. I have done all these things at your word. Now, he lived in a time when prophets were direct conduits of revelation, and God had showed him specifically what it was that he was to believe and ask for. And while God does no longer speak directly to people, contrary to Beth Moore and Sarah Young and all these people who are getting these direct revelations and text messages from God, God does not do that. That's sheer heresy, and every cult is built on that kind of heresy. Some extra dream revelation, something beyond Scripture, but God still speaks just as clear, and He speaks through His written Word You should put out on the margin next to this verse, 1 John 5, 14 and 15. 1 John 5, 14 and 15. This is the confidence we have before him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we have asked, then we know that we have the request we've asked from him. If you have a promise 
from God to stand on, then all things being equal, you can, with the same expectation, look and believe God to listen and answer that prayer. That's not presumption. That's faith, and without faith, it's impossible to please God. And so Elijah's prayer is in, accord, is in accordance with God's word. He says in verse 37, answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their heart back again. I mean, what a contrast between the prayer of the false prophets that lasts for six hours and this man of God whose prayer lasts for about six seconds. It was simple, but it's characterized by one ingredient. It's faith based on the word of God. It's not frantic like the prophets of Baal. He doesn't need to be. He prays, and as verse 38 indicates, the fire falls. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones. I went camping a lot when I was a child with the Boy Scouts, and we consumed the food, but the fire never did unless we burned it a little bit. And there was always coals from the wood, but I promise you the stones were never kindling. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering in the wood and the stones and the dust. Usually when you burn something, there's dust and ash, but this fire was so hot it consumed the dust and the ash. And we read the fire, notice, licked up the water that was in the trench. The water could not put the fire out, but the fire put the water out. It evaporated every single drop. Elijah prayed for fire to come down from heaven to light the wood. And God does more than that. He consumes it all. And it's a reminder to me of what the Apostle Paul said in the New Testament, that God can do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think that God can not only answer your prayer, but very often when he answers it, he answers it far beyond your expectations if you only believe as Elijah did. Now, there are hindrances to prayer. Psalm 66, 18 says, if I regard iniquity, if I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Not if I sin, but if I hold on to it, if I cling on to it, if I regard it, if I claim it, God won't hear. We take some of these scriptures that speak about God not hearing prayer, and all the scriptures in the Bible of God not hearing prayer is always in reference to the believer, never to the unbeliever. Now, there are no promises for the unbeliever to claim that God will respond to his prayer except for the prayer and calling on the name of the Lord to be saved, though God on occasion does answer the prayers of unbelievers in the Scriptures, and we could cite many examples. But he promises to answer only the prayers of his people. And so God responds to the Christian who doesn't live on a spiritual fence. There's no compromise, no straddling. But you're able to exercise the courage of your convictions because your heart is clean and clear. In the final analysis, prayer is our most effective tool. When it came down to the wire where Baal has failed, God's greatest work through Elijah comes in response to prayer. And as I thought about it this week, anything God has ever done great for his glory in my life, it has always, always without exception been done in response to prayer. You know, when all else fails, read the instructions. 
And sometimes it's not until everything fails that we go and try prayer. I mean, do you pray? I didn't ask, do you listen to your pastor's prayer? I didn't ask, do you listen to your parents' prayer? I didn't ask, do you have a good Bible study on prayer? I didn't ask, have you read a good book on prayer? But do you pray? Can you pinpoint in the last 168 hours during this past week where a few places for maybe just two or three minutes you prayed? Now that was the challenge and the contest. Now comes in verses 39 and 40 the consequences. Two consequences occur, the same two consequences that will occur when Jesus comes again, salvation for some, judgment for others. Now, notice how the people who have been riding the spiritual fence, how they respond in faith here in verse 39. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. In the morning, it was Baal worship that had prevailed But at the end of the day, it's Jehovah worship that is supreme. God answered the prayer, not just by bringing fire down from heaven, but turning the hearts of the people to be back on fire for him. But there's also a drastic word here for the worshipers of Baal. Look at verse 40. Then Elijah said to them, the sons of Israel, seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them, and Elijah brought them to the brook Kishon and slew them there. Some of you have been with me on the top of Mount Carmel where this great challenge and showdown took place. And you can look just down at the hill and see the brook Kishon. And so when the fire fell from heaven, these false prophets, they didn't fall down on their face and say, oh, we were wrong, God, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, he's the one true God. Oh, these are true apostates. They were confirmed in their unbelief. Now, some may think that the direction that God gave to Elijah was extreme, but understand there's a malignancy in the nation. You've got these wicked priests, these wicked preachers, and they're not just practicing, they are promoting sheer idolatry. And they are engaging people in the most degrading of all sins, violent morality, and child sacrifice. And so Elijah, he's not living in a republic like we are. He is living in a theocracy. And there's only been one true theocracy in the history of the world, and it was between God and Israel. But in 21st century terminology, it would be like saying the church and the state are one. But Elijah is just carrying out the command of what Moses wrote, put it in the margin, Deuteronomy 13, verse 5, that those who woo Israel into the worship of a false god will forfeit their lives. Let me read it to you. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has counseled rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery to seduce you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you. So you shall purge the evil from among you. Now too often the critics and sometimes even Christians read verse 40 and they go into moral hysterics. But we don't understand that God is a God of justice and righteousness and holiness 
and he's against apostasy. And apostasy is a big deal to God because God loves people and he loves the souls of people. And God knows that people are going to spend an eternity either, either in heaven or hell. And so it's our lack of understanding of who God is and what God has revealed that lead people into this moral hysteria. By the way, Paul in the New Testament in Galatians chapter 1, he's concerned about those false teachers who had come into the church, who had changed the message, who had presented, quote unquote, another gospel, a heteros gospel, a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Because they had added to the work of the Messiah, they said, Jesus' death and resurrection, we don't deny it, but it's not enough. We have to add something to it. That's Roman Catholicism in a nutshell. It's a Jesus plus plan. And that's liberal Protestantism if they even bring Jesus into the equation. So he gives a double curse in the book of Galatians. Let me read it to you. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be a curse. The word is anathema. It means eternally condemned. He is writing this under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit. Today it might be baptism, confirmation, church membership, always something beyond Jesus. Then he adds, as we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to a gospel contrary to what you have received, he is to be accursed. And so the critics read a verse like this and they say, where's Paul's love that he would ask for a double curse upon those who spread a false gospel? Why is he so harsh? Because he was for souls. And he knew that false gospels only land people in a place of eternal retribution. And so he will say in the fifth chapter, to those who will add even circumcision in 5.12, I wish that those who are troubling you, these false teachers, would even mutilate themselves. He's saying if you're a false teacher and you want to make the right of circumcision so critical to salvation, why don't you just go all the way? And so here in 1 Kings, Elijah, like a spiritual surgeon, he wants to remove the religious cancer from the land. God doesn't use breath mints to deal with cancer. He uses surgery. And there's a malignancy in the nation, and you can't leave a single cell of that malignancy. It must be rooted out. Now, as we conclude, we need to ask a question. What kind of a man, what kind of a woman, what kind of a teenager, what kind of a boy, what kind of a girl can God use? Well, there are several characteristics that jump into the forefront of my mind from these pages of Scripture. Number one, by way of application, God uses a person who is sold out to Jesus Christ. It's clear that God uses a person who doesn't straddle the spiritual fence, but who's sold out to Christ. Humanly speaking, obviously, the odds are stacked, but because he's in the center of God's will, he could stand fast. The odds are 850 to 1. There are 850 to 1 plus God. And I hasten to say that the significance was not in the 1, but in the plus God. The one who controls Elijah the prophet, he knew that 1 plus God constitutes a majority. You may feel like you're outnumbered at school or the place you work. 
the place where God has called you to live, the apartment complex, the battalion, the neighborhood in which you are in as a believer. But the question is never in Scripture how many. The question is always what kind of a believer are you? When you study the book of Acts, you see they were able to turn the world upside down, and Jesus had made the promise there on that mountain in Galilee, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. The early church, they were just a handful of people. They didn't have all of the mechanics and all the bells and whistles that we have today, but they accomplished so much more because they believed in the power and the preaching of God's Word. Someone wrote me and they said, you should shorten your sermons because people will listen to you and they won't sit through an hour. I'm not going after those people. That's a worldly technique. I believe in the power and the authority of God's word to change lives. And if a person can sit three hours through a football game, they ought to be able to sit an hour and a half through a worship service. People sometimes will say, but pastor, I'm only one person. That's never the issue. It's not what can I do, but what can God do? You may be a lone ranger where you are, and you may be overwhelmed by the size of the opposition. But like Daniel says, the people who know their God exhibit strength. Our problem is we have a warped, distorted picture of the infinite God. But when I am sold out and clean and walking in purity before God like Elijah was, then God can work in any situation. But there's a second principle I want you to see, and it is this. God uses a man or a woman of faith. One of the characteristics that marks a man or a woman of faith is not that they are problem-oriented, but potential-oriented. And I'm sure he could have wrung his hands and thought, man, things are rough. Look at all these Baal worshipers. They got 850 prophets. I alone seem to be left. All the other prophets are hiding in a cave. And there's a lot of Christians who spend their whole time focusing on the problems You know as soon as you meet them, they're going to come up and start whining to you. But problems are just circumstances where we have chosen not to believe that God is able, that God is sovereign, that his providence extends to every detail of life. They can be possibilities. Remember in Numbers 13, when the children of Israel come to that place, Kadesh Barnea, and they need to make a decision. God had promised I will give you this land. These were wicked, evil. They didn't steal the land. These were people who were killing little babies. God says, I want you to go into the land and take it. So Moses, of course, sends in 12 spies, not to see if they could take the land, for God had promised it, but how? And so there's this balance between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And Joshua and Caleb come back with the minority report. They come back and say, we should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we will surely overcome it. They believe that God is able to perform that which he has promised. But then there is the majority report, the other 10 who also spied out the land. And their testimony was, we went into the land. 
where you sent us. And it certainly does flow with milk and honey. And this is its fruit, nevertheless. The people who live in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. We are not able to go up against the people, for they are too strong for us. The land through which we have gone is spying it, in spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants and all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. And then they add, and we became like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. What was the difference? Did not Joshua and Caleb see the same fortified cities and the same enormous people? Yes, they did, but they saw more than that. They saw the living God and the promise he had made. So what do you see this morning? See, your faith is like a muscle, and it grows as you exercise it, and you exercise it as you obey what God has said, and as you obey what you know you will grow. These were people, Joshua and Caleb, who were available to the will of God, and I would just ask, are you like Elijah, available to God's will? The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 4, it is required of a steward that one be found faithful. It's required of a steward that one be found faithful. Not handsome, not famous, not gifted, not wealthy, not articulate, not funny, not brilliant, but faithful. You say, Pastor Carl, I don't have all that much. My friend, you have all that God intended for you to have. You can do anything that God wants you to do if your heart is fully devoted to him. And the more I study this guy, Elijah, the more I am struck with what the apostle James said in James 5. He is a man of like passion with a nature just like ours. He was an ordinary man who lived an extraordinary life. And so when God looks for a servant, he may look for a servant who is living in a wicked, depraved generation much like ours but a servant who is willing to choose and to believe God. Listen, it was during this time, these dark days in Israel's history that the chronicler would write, for the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. God is still looking for clean people that he can use in a dirty world. It was C.T. Studd, the medical doctor turned missionary, to Africa, who repeatedly says, said, the world has yet to see what God will do through a man completely yielded to him. And when D.L. Moody read that statement, he said, oh God, let me be that man. And God is still searching for people who are completely his. If God were to look into the hearts of all those who are live streaming and listening, wherever you may be today, could he say, that person's heart, your heart, is completely mine. You have the kind of commitment to the Lord God that I can use. And let me tell you, if your Christianity has not put that kind of steel and availability into your bones, then there's something wrong with your Christianity. God is not looking for people who just blend in with the world. That's what the church growth movement is. Let's blend in with the world. Let's give them what they want because we'll fill the place, yes, with false conversions. 
Oh, God, let me be that man. God will say through James that friendship with the world is spiritual adultery. And so God gave a supernatural demonstration of his power on this day. And while he may not bring fire down from heaven, he can put the fire of God, the Holy Spirit, in your heart if you're yielded to him. Now, if you remember on Shavuot, or what we call Shavuot, or the day of Pentecost, the critics, when they saw the miracle working power of God, they said, what does this mean? And because they asked the question, what does this mean? They went on to ask a question, brethren, what must we do? Our problem is, is that we want people to ask, brethren, what must we do before they are able to ask, what does this mean? See, our life should be so distinctively different and so distinctively clean that when the word of God is spoken through our lips, it comes out in a fashion that is alive and convicting where we say, brethren, what must we do? Now, these Israelites got the message that day. And what took place on that altar was a rebuke to their unbelief, but it was also an invitation to get right with God. What took place there on the top of Mount Carmel only proved that God is great, but also that God is gracious and God is just. But on a different altar, on an altar called Golgotha, God didn't send fire down. God himself left heaven and came down. For a child will be born and the child's name will be called Mighty God and that child, as Isaiah said, would be pierced through for our iniquities. And what God did on Golgotha was a rebuke for his holy hatred of sin. The real true God stood up on Mount Carmel, but he came down on Golgotha. And he provided a way of escape. And there is salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which you can be saved. And unless you come to God through Christ, your fate will be the fate of these false prophets. Now, our Holy Father, we thank you for your word, a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. I pray today for some man, some woman, some teenager, some young man or girl who wants to be saved Help them to know that they can be saved. You said today is the day of salvation, that if they will call upon Jesus right now, he will save them and forgive them for all of eternity. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you didn't partially, but you completely paid for our sin, that you shouted to tell us thy, it's finished, it's paid in full, and we can do nothing to improve upon the sinless, precious blood that you spilt. Thank you that you declared to all men everywhere that you are Lord when you were raised from the dead. So help someone to believe your word. Help them to put their faith where you placed their sin on the one who in his own body on the cross bore our sin. But help them to recognize they must admit that their sin is sin, that it's evil, that it needs to be forgiven and changed. If they will come, you will receive them, for you said Christ Jesus receives sinful men. He came into the world to save sinners. Help someone to say in simple childlike faith, knowing that you cannot lie, Lord Jesus, 
save me. And help someone today even to make it public on their visitor's card. Help someone who's local to come tonight to meet the pastor to say, I became a believer today. But we know many in our audience have already crossed that line. But we know that it is not impossible for there to be compromise in the heart of a true believer. And you have called us hundreds of times over to continue under the lordship of Christ. May our lives be characterized by purity and holiness that we might be clean vessels that you can use to your own honor and glory. And we ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen.